from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than that what was laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he, w- that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we beseech you. We ask for your spirit to fill this room, to avail our head and our heart to the truth that you would like to proclaim. May we also be mindful of our brothers and sisters who are in Ukraine and Russia, that you will use that, the, the church there as instruments of your compassion and glory and that your gospel may radiate. So please use us that we may build upon the foundation that Christ laid and do so with precious stones. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. We're going to be looking at that passage today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're continuing our sermon series, His Workmanship. And today, we're looking at this idea of being the temple of the living God, the holy temple of the living God. Now, last week, we looked at the same passage. We talked about being God's co-workers. And at a very high level, remember we said, at a very high level, God is the one who's responsible for creation He's responsible for election. At a deep level, he's the one who is responsible for regeneration and uh, when we become born again. But God has also called and invited us into this work as co-laborers, co-workers. So he's called us to go out. We have the job of going out. We've been commissioned to make disciples going into all the world and, and preaching and proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to do the work of tilling the ground and sowing the seed and fertilizing it and bringing irrigation to the field and the strenuous effort of reaping the harvest. But we learn it is God who gives the growth. God is the one who who makes all of that worth anything. And Paul now switches the metaphor from a field to a building, not just any building, Not a concert or a lecture hall or a theater or a home. Nope. What Paul is referring to here when he's describing what we just read is a temple. And what he's saying is you and I are that temple collectively together. We are the temple of the living God. And you better be careful how you build on my foundation. And he says, I came as an expert builder. I came and I laid a foundation not as a shoddy builder. Listen, holy shoddy is still shoddy. He says, I came and I laid an expert, as an expert builder, a foundation, and everyone who builds on that foundation needs to be careful. Why? Because we need to build in light of final evaluation. Build your life and build the church in in, uh, anticipation of this final judgment that all of us will undergo and every local church will undergo for how faithful they have been to the gospel. And so he says, if you build with flammable materials, if you build with wood, hay, sticks, straw, that stuff will go up in flames. But if you build with the good stuff, if you build the temple with quality materials, it will endure. 
because we are God's holy temple. Number one on your outline, now if you're following along with me on your outline, you can track with my thoughts today. The first thing Paul wants to tell us is, is that the local church is God's holy temple. The local church is God's holy temple. Now, here in the context, Paul's referring to them, the Corinthian church. What's wrong with that? Remember what we said last week. The Corinthians are a hot mess. It's just chaos there. And despite that, Paul wants to remind them, no, you're a holy temple of God. You are the temple. He says in verse 16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit or the spirit of this holy God lives in you where God's spirit dwells. And so we need to understand this idea. What is a temple? What is it? Better yet, better question, what was a temple in the ancient Near East? In order for us to understand Paul's metaphor here or Paul's imagery of the temple, we have to try and understand what was really common for them but is not very common for us. It almost has no meaning for us the way that it would for them. So we have to just put ourselves in their shoes and just think, try and think the way that an ancient Near Eastern or an ancient Greek or Jew would think. So the first thing you need to know about a temple is that a temple is the place, it's the nexus between heaven and earth. A temple is the nexus between heaven and earth. What do we mean here? It's the place where heaven and earth meet. In the ancient world, the temple was a place where the, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm came together. And, and the reason why the heavenly realm and the earthly realm come together is because God lives there. And if you were in ancient Greek, it was one of your gods, like Zeus or, who, or Aphrodite or whoever it was. And so this, there's this idea that, that the gods manifest or reveal themselves in the temple. Now, every ancient culture, just about every ancient culture had a word to describe what the gods do in the temples. The Babylonian word is sabutu. The Aramean, ancient Aramean word is sabata. For Persians, the word is usambat. For Greeks, the word is sabatan. The Cadians would use the word sapatu. And the Hebrews would use the word shabbat. And when you see that translated in your Bible, it's translated as Sabbath. And this word means rest. And when you see Genesis chapter 1, you see this is what Moses is pushing back on. Moses is pushing back on this ancient idea that all these little gods, all these little finite gods live in these little shrines. And what they do is they rest, they dwell, they Shabbat, they Sapatu, right? That's what they do in their little shrines. So when you read Genesis chapter 1, this is fundamentally what he's pushing back on. What he's pushing back on is to say, no, listen, the God of the universe, the true God, there is only one shrine that, can, that he can inhabit, and that's the cosmos itself. And what does he do on day seventh? Shabbat. He rests. He dwells there. And how do we know this is his cosmic temple? Because every ancient temple had at least two things. It had a garden, and in the garden was an image of that deity, and when we read Genesis 1 and 2, what do we find? God puts them in a garden, and who's there? His image bearers, Adam and Eve. And so understand that this is the place where this God dwells, and it's the place where heaven and earth meet. A temple is also required, required a royal priesthood as a go-between. So in the ancient Near East, you had to have a royal priesthood to go between. Who? 
between the gods and those who had angered the gods, between the deity and those who were not in a reconciled relationship with that deity. And so the priesthood was the go-between. The priest was the mediator between God and man. And now when we come to the New Testament, we find that not only does God call the Jewish nation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to the world, a nation of priests, now he applies it to every believer. Okay, First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and 9. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, and you yourselves, you are living stones, a spiritual house. You're being built uh, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Slip to verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what we did when we stood here and we sang those songs together during the singing portion of this worship service. We are declaring the high praises of God to the nations. This is the place where someone who is an unbeliever can come and hear the priests of God who sit here as his priesthood, his royal nation, declaring his high praises and his glory. Amen. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, he says, because you, Jesus, because you were slaughtered and you, were, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, And you made them who, every person who has been purchased from the nations, from every language and every tribe, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. And so this is how the story is going to end. We're going to be God's representatives in the world, and this is why in the Christian faith we don't have a special priesthood. I'm not your priest. Uh, Now, once in a while, someone who isn't a Christian refers to me that way. They're like, oh, you're a priest? I'm like, no, no, I'm a pastor. I'm an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, but actually I serve a congregation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and when we come together every week, we together declare the high praises of God to the world. The temple was also the deity's command center in the world. Now, if you go back and you study these ancient Near Eastern temples, what you'll find is that the cities were built around the ziggurat or they were built around the shrine and they were war camps. You go back and you look at how the tabernacle and how the temple of David or the temple of Solomon was set up, what you'll find is that the people built that temple and they built the city around the temple as a war camp. Zion, Mount Zion, is Yahweh's war zone. That's the command center from which he does battle with the pagan nations of the world. So what you need to understand is that a temple, fundamentally what a temple is, is the place where the deity, God, is sovereign. And that's the place from which he, he rules his realm. That's the place from which he rules his realm. And the temple was the place where sacrifices were made to appease the deity's anger and wrath. I don't think there was any culture in the ancient world that didn't have a sacrificial system to appease the wrath and the anger of whatever God they served. 
And then when we look at it in the Jewish context, what we find is that, yes, indeed, the sacrifices that are being made are there to symbolically cover my sin because God is going to pour his wrath out and his judgment on my sin. That's that's for sure. But the ancient Near Eastern gods didn't love their people. The reason why God pushes forward to a final sacrifice, the Lamb of God hanging on the tree for you, for me, is because that God loves us. And he wants to atone for our sins once and for all. And so the reason why this gathered assembly is so imperative, folks, is because it is the nexus between heaven, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. It is the place where God's manifest revealed presence dwells among his people. It's the people and it's the place where God mediates his presence through his servants, his royal priesthood, his holy nation to the world. And it's the place where God's kingdom is on display. There is no place on earth where God's reign should be more on display than right here in the church. Now, it's chaos out there, isn't it? The world is coming apart at the seams, and that's often how it feels. We don't know what's going on in Ukraine and with Russia. It could be World War III. We're not sure, so it's chaos out there, but it's Jesus ruling in here. And what we want to do as a congregation who gathers in the name of the Lord is we want to show the world this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how it's done. This is what humanity is supposed to look like. Maximum flourishing, maximum purpose, maximum growth is living under the authority of God's word gathered in his name by his spirit. So, we are a holy temple. Number two, God's holy temple can be defiled and it can be destroyed. God's holy temple can be defiled and it can be destroyed. What do you mean by this? Well, strictly speaking, the church universal. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ryan talked to us about the church being universal and the church being local. Now, the church universal cannot be defiled and it cannot be destroyed. Listen, they may push Christians, Islam may push Christians out of the Middle East, but wherever you push us, we're going to start churches over there. And China may run us underground But if you run us underground, we're going to disciple people underground. I mean, ultimately, you can try to eradicate us, but if you think you can do it, I tell you what, ask Rome how it went. Because there was no culture ever that was as as exceedingly efficient at snuffing out cults that it didn't like than Rome. (laughs) Rome was quite, quite good at this. And within 300 years, the whole Roman Empire was Christian. I mean, don't count the church out. The church universal cannot be defiled and it cannot be destroyed. We have the gospel of Jesus. We have been enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Folks, we are an unstoppable force in the world. But at the same time, a local church, the Corinthian church, they were in danger. They were very much in danger. And if you want to read about some of the churches that, that probably didn't make it past the first century, read the book of Revelation chapters one through three. Because what Jesus says is, listen, if you, if you don't continue in doctrinal purity or you don't get this practices of the Nicolaitans or whoever they are out of the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to snuff out your candlestick. I'm going to remove your candlestick, which means you're not going to be a church anymore. And the Corinthians, this is why Paul is so urgent with them. 
And he says in verse 16 and 17, he says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Those are serious words, folks. For God's temple is holy and and that is what you are. And so Paul is warning the church against those who would seek to destroy the church. Did you know that there are people who seek to destroy the church? And there are people, there are sheeps, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? But then there are other people, some of us do it inadvertently. And what I have found is the most socially destructive activity that churches engage in is the sin of gossip. And I want to talk to you about it today. I want to talk to you about the sin of gossip. I have watched two churches in the last 45 years, I have seen two churches destroyed by the sin of gossip. This is just something that can just tear us apart. Look at Romans 1.29. Paul Paul says this. He says, "They, they, that is idolaters, people who are just given over to sin and haven't turned to Jesus. They are filled with unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness. This is the general state of humanity. And they are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, and they are gossips. Look at the company that gossip keeps. Now, in ancient Greece, gossip was encouraged. And the reason it was encouraged, at least at a popular level, it was encouraged because women and slaves could not vote, they could not own property, they had no ability otherwise to direct the affairs of government. They had no ability to be in the halls of power. And so what they would do, what these Greek, Greco-Roman women would do is they would break into these factions in homes and what they would do is start the rumor mill. They were rumor mongers. And they would start the rumor mill and ancient rulers and, and governors and people like this, they were terrified of the rumor mill. And this was their only social power. And now this is why Paul has to write Timothy in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5.13. He says, referring to these uneducated women who are doing this, he says at at the same time, they also learn to be idle. The Greek culture teaches them to be lazy, going from house to house, every house church, every home Bible study. And what are they doing? They're not only idle, they're gossips. They're busybodies, saying things they should not say. So what is it? Why is it so destructive? Well, gossip is defined biblically as one who traffics in rumor or innuendo or hearsay. Gossip is not only saying, hey, did you hear about so-and-so and spreading a lie about someone? Yes, that is gossip. But you can also suggest a character or defect in another person with your questions. You can embed gossip in a question. Now, if you come up to me and you say, hey, how's Jeff and Carrie? I would say, man, we're doing, doing well. God is good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. But if you go to someone else when I am not present in the conversation, and you say, how's Jeff and Carrie? Oh, you know, like all of a sudden now, your tone is suggesting something is wrong. You can introduce gossip with your tone. And so we need to be careful of this, folks, because this sort of thing is very destructive to the life and the health of any local church. So let me say two things about it, okay? Everybody put on your best poker face here. I'll say two things about it. We've all been guilty of this at some level. I mean, men, women, kids, we've all done it. We've all crossed the line 
and found ourselves going, ah, why did I say that about that person who isn't present here and wouldn't approve of my characterization of them? Like, why did I do that? So listen, men, women alike, we're all susceptible to this, and we have all done it at some level. The second thing I want to say about it is this, ladies, uh, this is more tempting for you than it is for us guys. It just is. If you don't believe that, please ask Vic Pearson if you can come to the next Real Men Discipleship Night. <laughs> and, and eavesdrop on our conversations because they're hilarious. We talk about our hobbies, our jobs. We talk about what we killed, our favorite fishing spots. <laughs> like we intentionally try to keep the conversation pretty shallow. I bet you most of you men in here, this is probably not true of all of you, but I bet most of you men in here did not come this morning thinking, man, I really want to find a group where I can go and just pour out my feelings. <laughs> like just express all that is in my heart. <laughs> Guys are not wired that way. Remember James Dobson? James Dobson used to have this statistic where he used to say, men, statistically, men are wired to express about 25,000 words a day, and women about 50 to 75,000, right? So we're, we don't have the metabolic urge, a driving urge in our heart that's unabating to share our feelings. We just don't do that. So yes, we gossip. We sin that way, but we don't do it as much as you we just don't. It's not our thing. Like, that's not the thing we can't wait to do. And so, what do you do if you have a gossip problem, whether you're a man or a woman? Whether you're a man or a woman, what do you do? Giving you some steps here. Step number one is confess your sins. Oh, confession is so good for us, isn't it? Confession is powerful. In fact, what James says in James 5, 16, you can look this up Later, he says, confess your sins one to another, to each other, so that you may be healed. Confession is just a powerful healing device. Now, may I suggest, every time you gossip about anyone, go to the person you gossiped about and tell them. Like, seriously, go to them and say, hey, listen, I, I want to tell you, I stepped over the line. And I just want you to know that was not my heart, but I did. And I want to confess my sins. And if you do that enough, guess what? You won't be gossiping very much <laughs> because you will be holding yourself to account. You will be holding yourself accountable for it. So confess your sins. And then step two, repent and choose to be kind. Gossip and slander and hearsay, listen, is unkind. It's not kind to talk over the back fence about someone who isn't present and wouldn't approve of your characterization of them. It's not kindness. And what the scripture says is this, Romans 2, 4. Paul said this. He said, don't you know it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Let me ask you a question. How messed up were you when you came to Jesus? Now, some of you don't remember. But some of us do. <laughs> I'm looking at Daniel. Like some of us do. We remember what it was like to go from darkness, utter darkness, to the kingdom of his glorious light. And it was freeing and it was beautiful and it was amazing. And if you stop and think about all that Jesus has tolerated in you, 
all that Christ has done for you, Paul says this, it's God's kindness that draws us to repentance. How dare we not be kind with others? We are to show them the same kindness that Christ has shown us, the same kindness. And step number three, self-correct with words that heal. Self-correct with words that heal. Proverbs 15, 4 says, the tongue that heals is a tree of life, but a devious tongue breaks the human spirit. You have permission to interrupt yourself. You have permission to stop mid-conversation and say to whoever it is, whatever little group or person that you're talking to, when you realize, oh, wait, I just gossiped about that person. They're not here. They wouldn't approve of my characterization of them. Stop right there and say to the person you're talking to, you know what? I just crossed the line. I'm so sorry. I'm going to go to that person and confess my sins, but I'm sorry. I just crossed the line. I shouldn't have said what I said. Now, if you discipline yourself to do that, If you discipline yourself to self-correct with words that heal, you will be less prone to do it. And step number four, begin to view people sympathetically and compassionately. Just begin to view people differently than you have been. Because up until this point, you view people as um, sinners, right? You view them as worse than you. How do we know this? 1 Peter 3, 8 says this, finally, All of you be like-minded and sympathetic, loving one another. Notice how he puts those two together. He says, be sympathetic toward one another, which is to love one another. Loving another person means you sympathize with them. You try to put yourself in their shoes. You try to understand what, what have they gone through to get to this point. And then he goes on to say, and be compassionate and humble. Do you know why gossip destroys relationships because it's arrogant. It's passing, fundamentally, it's just passing judgment on another person. What you're saying is this. You're saying, that person's messed up, and I'm the standard. Like, I'm the gold standard. That's why we have to be compassionate and humble. And so I mentioned this because gossip is terribly destructive to relationships. I, again, I have seen it tear local temples, local churches Apart. And Paul says this if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. The most defiling thing in the body of Christ today I've seen, though, however, is sexual sin. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Specifically, I want to talk about the sin of pornography. Now, the world won't tell you this is sin. Listen, young people, listen to me right now. The world won't tell you this is sin. Hey, listen, it's not the entertainment industry's responsibility to tell you this. It's mine. It's the church's. It's God's word, okay? But this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 now, verses 18 through 20. He says, flee sexual immorality. The Greek phrase he uses here is fugate pornea. Fugate pornea. You see, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own, his or her own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your bodily life. Because not only is is the collective, like the gathered assembly of God, the holy, righteous temple of God, where where the praises of God are on display, 
But you, the individual, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Now, I want to stay on the body. I want to stay on not your individual body, but the group. Now, pornography used to be a guy problem. In fact, I looked up an old sermon I did on this. It, it was 10 years ago. I did it at East Point Church. I did the sermon 10 years ago, and my statistics were totally uh, were accurate at the time, but they're totally off now. At the time, overall, 90% of men responded in surveys to say they had a problem with it. Like they were regularly looking at it, and a whopping 10% of females, like at the time we were like, this cannot be true. This can't be right. Why are women looking at pornography? Like 10% of women are looking at pornography. Today, the statistics have skewed upward. 35, uh, under the age of 35, 93% of young men regularly view pornographic material, and the number is as high as 58% among women 35 and under. If you blow that out to all age groups, that's about 40% of all women view it regularly. Think about this. So, it's becoming a socially acceptable sin in our culture. It's becoming encouraged in our culture. Uh, comedians are constantly making pornographic jokes and making light of it, and it's not funny. It goes without saying that we live in a sex-soaked world. But so did the Corinthians. The brothels were everywhere. There were naked statues of gods and goddesses everywhere. All the temples practiced temple prostitution. <laughs> it was very hard. It was very difficult to be a Jew or a Christian in the first century and follow Paul's commands, his instructions on this point. And notice that Paul doesn't give them a pass. Paul doesn't say, listen, I know it's everywhere, but hey, uh, do your best. He doesn't say, listen, I know you're just surrounded by this. You're inundated by this in culture. But hey, just oh, give yourself some grace. He does not say that. He says, fugite pornea, <laughs> right? Like flee sexual immorality in all of its forms. Why? Because God designed us to live with limitations, God has built into the human life and into the human soul, into our psyche, into our very biological constitution. God has designed us to live with limits. You see, we have to live in a world full of money and not love it because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we have to live in a world of things and not covet those things. And we have to live in a world with opportunities for self-advancement and not take shortcuts and not give in to corruption. And we have to live in a world with broken people and not judge those people and not gossip about those people. And we also have to live in a world with beautiful people and not lust after them. Limits are, listen, limits are healthy. Limitations on our self-expression and freedom sustain our joy, sustain our joy in life. Now, you think about anything that you enjoy in life, no matter what it is. Everything in moderation is better. Everything in moderation is better. Everything that you enjoy in life comes with limits. It comes with parameters. 
I would love for Congress, the legislative branch of our government, to pass a law today called the Jeff Kennedy Driving Law. <laughs> and the law allows me to drive however I would like. <laughs> and so if I come up and there's a long line to the red light, I just pull right around everyone and drive right around you. I would love that. But the reason why the laws are such they are as they are is to protect not only me from you, but to protect you from me, for sure. And so the law is there so that we can all enjoy driving and so that we can all do it for the rest of our lives and for longer lives, right? That's why the law is there. The command is good. The parameter, when God says, listen, I've given you all these trees to eat from, but you cannot eat from that one. I'm telling you, that's a limit. You can't have what you want. You can't have it. That's good for them. That's not bad for them. Listen, sexual sin defiles us because we are not designed to crave what we do not have. Sexual sin trains our minds to look at people as mere objects to be used for our pleasure. And listen, people are not objects. That's what the naturalist, atheist, humanism worldview wants to tell you. The world will tell you you're nothing more than matter in motion. You're nothing but an object. And when you start to believe that nonsense, that lie, you can justify horrific things like abortion. Well, tell me abortion isn't wrong. Abortion is murder of a precious child who is made in the image of Almighty God. But the reason why you can justify it is because it's just a blob of nothing. And that woman that you're lusting at, listen, I'm talking to you guys right now, but I could easily be talking to some of you ladies too. Listen, guys, listen. That woman that you're lusting at, she's not an object. Not even your wife. She wasn't an object designed for your pleasure. She is a daughter of God. She is God's daughter. So I want to now get into some of the steps to help you with this. Number one, confess your sins to trustworthy men. And women, if you have a problem with this, confess your sins to trustworthy women. And by trustworthy, I mean people who won't gossip about you. People who won't share your, your, your stuff with other people. They'll keep it confident, <clears throat> in confidence. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 6. He says, don't take a handful of your best pearls and cast them before pigs. Why? The pig doesn't care. He doesn't value it. Not only will he trample the pearls, he'll turn around and trample you. And so the, the, the principle of the, the proverb is very simple. Don't put your valuable information before someone who would do great harm with that information. Don't do that. Step number two, reorient how you see women as the daughters of God. Now, 2 Corinthians 6, 8, here's what he says. For those of you who have come to faith, those of you who have believed in the Lord, this is God's pledge to you. This is the Father's promise to you. He says this, I'll be your father, and you now are my sons and my daughters. Do you understand that the woman that you're lusting after, that's God's little girl? Let me ask you men who have girls. How would you like for someone to be looking at your girl the way you've looked at other women? Do you know she has a dad? And do you know that God ultimately is her dad? Do you know that ultimately you are going to give an account to Almighty God for how you have looked at his daughters? 
I mean, if you came up to me and told me that you were looking at my daughter that way, I would not be the trustworthy man with that information. I would trample your pearls and then I would trample you too. <laughs> that would be a super bad idea. But these are God's girls. They're His. And you and I will give an account for how we have oogled them or treated them or looked at them or exploited them. Believe you me. Step three, flee temptation. First Corinthians 6, 18. He says, flee. Yucatan, pornea, <laughs> right? Get out of the room. Now, there are two aspects to fleeing temptation, okay? The first aspect is proactive. It is just being intentional about not being exposed to it. So if you intentionally not be exposed to it, listen, if that little magical device in your pocket that little magical device that gives you a portal to all kinds of obscenity, if you have a problem with it and you just can't not look, go back to a flip phone. Walmart still sells them. Like order one off of Amazon. Go back to a flip phone. I've never seen anybody sitting there trying to like look at pornography on a little flip phone. Like it doesn't happen. Do whatever you have to do to limit exposure, whatever it is. If you need software like Covenant Eyes on your phones or on your computers, put it on there. Most of us are not smart enough to, to work around it. I don't know how to do it. But the people that you're in accountability relationship, they will hold you accountable, accountable for what you're viewing. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is flee when you're inadvertently exposed. Get out of the room. I'll give you an example of this, quite literally. Uh, when I was at Dave Smith Motors, I was a car salesman. And every morning, man, we met for a sales meeting, and it was around the um, desk and the computer in the office of our sales manager. And my sales manager... So there's about 10 of us or so on his team, was right next to the office of his best friend who was also a sales manager, and we had this rivalry between our teams, and so he would give us the pep talk every day. So we'd get around his, his uh, desk, and he would give us the coaching talk, and, uh, but every day he would come in, and he would turn on his computer, or if his computer was already on, he would turn on his screen. But he and the sales manager, his best friend in, uh, next door, they love to play practical jokes on each other. And so uh, once in a while, they would just do really weird, strange things to each other. But this particular day, his friend had loaded the most smutty pornographic material you have ever seen in your entire life. I mean, like it just, he turned on the screen and it just came on the screen and immediately what I thought was, I thought that everybody in the room would go, hey, okay, <laughs> you know. I thought he would scramble to turn off his screen, but they didn't. They began to laugh about it and make jokes about it, and so I made a beeline out of there. I literally just kind of pushed through the guys and walked out of the door and went back to my desk. And later, my, my manager came to me and said, man, I'm sorry about that. I know, like, you're a priest or something. <laughs> I'm like, well, you're not wrong. <laughs> And he said, and I just, I, I, I apologize. And he really was. He, he was very sorry, and he tried to make that not happen again. But listen, this is what's called the Joseph method. Remember that story in the Old Testament? Joseph is minding his business. He's an excellent employee. Potiphar's wife looks at him one day, and, and she thinks, he, that's, he's hot stuff. Like, he's young and chiseled and handsome. And so she walks up to him, and now Potiphar's wife is... Really, I would just describe her as being super subtle. Like she just says, hey, come sleep with me. <laughs> you know, come to bed with me. That's subtle. 
And then so she grabs his robe, and he doesn't even wait to say, hey, get your hands off me. He doesn't have a conversation with her. He doesn't argue. He just turns and runs, and she's left there holding his robe and accuses him falsely of trying to rape her. And so sometimes, guys, you just got to get out of the room. If you're inadvertently exposed to it, get out. But don't, if as far as it is up to you, don't allow yourself to be exposed to it. Step number four, choose life. Choose life. This is what Deuteronomy 30 is about. Now, we are coming up on Deuteronomy 32. You read that book, and it's Moses' farewell speech. It's his farewell song. But in chapter 30, what he wants, he wants to make it clear. He gathers the whole nation. They all come together, and he says, Now, today, I set before you life and death. I set before you blessing and curses. And in verse 11, he says, This is not too hard for you. This is not too hard. You can choose. You can make the choice between death and life. What's he referring to? He's referring to Genesis, the Genesis creation story in which Adam and Eve are given two choices. What are the choices? Between the tree of life and between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so listen, every time you are tempted to use your phone or use your computer or some device or any form of media to look at that obscenity, you are making a choice between life, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is it called the knowledge of good and evil? Why isn't it just called the tree of evil? Because they already have the knowledge of the good. They already know God's good command to them. God is good. They experience this good God walking in the garden with them every single day. They have a vocation. They have a mission. They have been told, extend the project of Egypt out into the rest of the world. They know goodness. They know his command. What they don't know yet until they eat of that fruit is how to take the good and pervert it into something evil. Because sex is good. Sex is a gift that God has given to a man and a woman in the context of marriage only. And those are the limits, those are the parameters that he has put on it. And now we know after that incident, after the garden incident, how to turn something that's good into perverted. That literally is what perversion means. So evil is not just the absence of the good, it's the perversion of the good. Listen to me, do not buy the lie that no one can be free from a porn addiction. That is so, that's a lie. Don't believe that. Don't believe that just because you're inundated by it and it's everywhere and it's so easily accessible, do not believe for one second that you can't be free of it. Men, do not buy the cultural lie that in order for you to be sexually fulfilled that your wife has to match what you see on the computer screen. She does not nonsense. Your wife, listen, your wife is never going to be as available, as interested, as Botoxed and enhanced as that person on that screen. Don't force your wife to compete with that person. And women, now you young women, I want you to listen to me because you're going to be pressured. This is what the young women in our culture are pressured to do. You do not have to buy the nonsense to say that in order for you to be a sexually fulfilling partner, that you have to do what the men see on that screen. You don't. You do not. And so every every choice we have is a choice between life and death. 
It's a choice between the tree of life and the tree of turning something God has made good into something perverted and evil. Step number five, structure your life for accountability, not anonymity. Structure your life for accountability, not anonymity. (laughs) I love this passage in uh, Zechariah 8, this hardcore prophet, man. He says, uh, these are the things you have to do. He says, you have to do this. You must do this. You must speak truth to each other. You must speak the truth to each other. He says, you must gather and make your decisions with wisdom and truth in in the city gates. When we say accountability, we don't just mean, hey, I did this this week. No, we mean getting together with other men who can help hold your feet to the fire, who can help to hold you accountable, which means they have the freedom and permission to ask you the hard questions. And women, if this applies to you, you can do this with each other as well. But they have the freedom and the permission to ask you the deep questions, the hard questions. How are you doing in your thought life this week? Did you fail? What are you doing this week to repent, to walk away from that? And we need those environments. Listen, if you don't have that, you you need to get it right here in the church. And if you don't know where to get it, call Pastor Patrick. He'll help you figure it out. And here's why you need so badly men and women accountability. Because the fact of the matter is you and I cannot do it alone. You can't do it alone. It's impossible. It's impossible. I'll end with this story. I heard a parable about a wise sage. He was a father and he had four sons and his four sons were constantly bickering and fighting, knocking each other, knock down, drag out fights. And they were constantly Uh, bickering and fighting over every little thing, and he realized that they were going to grow up and grow apart, and he wanted them to stay close. He wanted them to stay unified. So what he did is he took all four of his sons out into the forest, and he challenged them to find a bunch of little twigs or little sticks, little branches. And sure enough, they did. They picked up handfuls of them, and they came back to the house with just armfuls of these little twigs and these little sticks. And when they got back to the house... He took all of their twigs, all of their bundles. He bundled them all into one. He tied it. He tied the bundle at each end and in the middle. And then one by one, starting with the youngest, he handed it to the youngest and said, now, try to break the twigs. And every son tried their hardest. And no matter how hard they tried, they could not break the bundle. And finally, the older son gave it back to the dad and said, I, I can't break it. What's the, what's the secret? What's the answer? This is very simple. He untied the bundle, and one by one, he broke every single twig individually in front of his boys. And the lesson was clear. There's strength in unity. There's strength in numbers. There's strength in groups. And if you get out there isolated, all on your own, all by yourself, the devil will snap you. He will break you. Guys, you need other guys. Ladies, you need other ladies. This is the reason why God has designed the temple, his new temple, to be a holy gathering where we come and we're cleansed by the blood of Christ and we raise holy hands. Listen, the church today can be wiped out locally. It can be destroyed by the sin of gossip. And it can be defiled if we do not choose to flee 
sexual immorality. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and I'm going to invite the, the ushers to come to the front. We're going to prepare to hand out communion this morning. Father in heaven, we just thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you that it challenges us, but also thank you for the life that it brings us. Here's what I want you to hear right now. Bow your head, close your eyes, focus your heart on the Lord, and this is what I want you to hear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Today, right here in this room, you can be purified. You can be made holy. You can walk out with clean hands. And if you're here this morning and you've gossiped about others and you've destroyed relationships because, you, because of fast lips, will you just confess it to the Lord right now? There's no shame in confession. There's only shame in unconfessed sin. And Father, we do. We confess that. We confess that at times we step over the line. And Lord, we just confess that when we step over the line, we're sinning. And it's not pleasing to you. And it destroys your holy, righteous temple. Would you forgive us and wash us clean in this moment by the blood of Jesus? For those of you, men or women, who are struggling this morning with sexual sin, sexual temptation, with just desiring things that God hasn't given you, would you just confess it? Father, we do. But we confess that uh, we're fallen human beings with a corrupted, sinful nature that cries out for things that it doesn't have every minute of the day. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. But Lord, would you just cleanse our hearts? Would you just purify us and wash us clean? And God, would you help us to lead others into that relationship as well? Lord, help, help us to get into accountable relationships where we can hold each other's feet to the fire and love each other and discipline each other. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.